we need to get going here too. Um, it's one of those, that some weeks are just, they're heavier than other weeks, you know, and uh, this week was nuts. And just coming into the weekend, there, there's a whole lot to dig into here in, um, in Ephesians and church, and then also here in Bible study and Revelation. So we're a little bit behind, and I'm going to try to get us partially caught up between this week and next week, and we shall see what actually happens, all right? Um, so let's pray, and uh, we'll dig in. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, that your spirit would be upon us to help us to hear it, to uh, read, mark, and digest it, and, uh, and that your, your spirit would help us to believe what you teach us. We pray it in, in, his, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Revelation chapter 10. Um, this is about where, where we uh, got bogged down uh, last week. And uh, um, this, uh, this chapter holds kind of a special place in my heart um, because I remember very clearly, I took a class on Revelation at the seminary. And uh, I remember taking the test and this was on it just all of the greek and it says translate this and i went okay yeah so yeah uh so it's always held kind of a special place in in, in my heart uh because of that um <clears throat> but uh, uh Can I ask yeah was the greek was it in was the question in greek or was it in the question was in english thankfully because it really helps to have previously translated something before you have to translate it on a test. <laughs> okay. Um, so we've been reading through these, um, uh, the, these angels as they, uh, they go through and they, uh, they blow the trumpet and then, then, then something happens and, and, um, and then we get to chapters 10 and 11, and it's almost like we just stepped completely out of what was going on. Um, a lot of commentators refer to this as a, an interlude. Um, something similar happened earlier when we were reading about the, uh, the, the, um, the seals, um, the scrolls and the lamb, the seven seals. And, um, you know, they keep opening them and opening them. And... Um, uh, in, uh, in chapter 7, he has this vision of 144,000 that are sealed. Um, and, you know, it's like, wait a second. We were going through opening seals, opening seals, and then we have this other thing that happens. Something similar is going on here. The trumpets are going, but, you know, one by one they blow their trumpet. And then we get to chapter 10, and it's like, wait a second. Something else is going on here. And uh, in chapter 10, we have this this part of this vision that, that has to do with this mighty angel, this huge angel. So we're going to do this, this whole chapter in one, all right? Um, would somebody be willing to read verses 1 through 7, and then somebody else 8 through uh, 11? They're actually about the same length. So somebody for 1 through 7? Thank you, Jill. And then somebody for 8 through uh, 11? Bill, thank you. his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. 
When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go take the scroll, the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who was standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach, stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. All right. So who, who's this angel? There's you know, a couple of things that we want to notice about him. First of all, wrapped in a cloud, he's got this rainbow over his head. Those are very much godly symbols. So he, he, is, uh, he is representing, in some ways, God here. He, I mean, an angel is a messenger of God. He's speaking with God's authority. His face is like the, the sun. His legs are like pillars of fire. This kind of takes us back even to the image of Christ at the beginning, you know, the, the way that he looks uh, when, when John sees him. And, uh, and so this angel, he's huge. Uh, he's got his land, he's one foot on the, the, uh, the sea and one foot on the land. And, and I think that the image that you have here is this godly authority that's dominating human history. You know, <clears throat> this isn't, you know, well, I know that this is this one event. These are, these are broad, sweeping images. And so this angel, it, it's, it's God's authority dominating human history and um, and. In all things, because the sea in the Old Testament tends to uh, represent evil and chaos and sin, and, and the land is where people dwell, and, and just all of this together is just wrapped up in the, the ministry of this, this angel. And, uh, and so as he's dominating all of this, we hear these, uh, these voices like a roaring lion, which I need to pause on that for a second. Have any of you ever heard a lion roar? Yeah, I was working at the St. Louis Zoo, <laughs> and uh, um, I, I did food service there. I was one of the people that ripped you off when you came there, um, and uh, uh, and basically uh, at the end of the day, I, I was an assistant manager, so we, we would get the, all the money and we would count it at the end of the day. So I'm I'm carrying bags with thousands of dollars, which is you know a little bit you know intimidating in and of itself. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's getting dark and the lion roars. And I was like, yikes. It's just, I, it, it, and he was completely on the other side of the zoo and it was so loud, you know, and, and the, the response is just so visceral. 
You know, so the, the sound that comes, I mean, this is, this is incredible and it's gigantic. And <clears throat> it's the kind of thing that's really going to, you know, grab John by the heart and, you know, terrify him in some ways. And he hears this and he goes to write it down. And he says, stop. Don't write that down. John got to hear it, but he doesn't get to record it. So then we can look at that and say, well, what did he say? I don't know. John didn't write it down. You know, and, and, you know people will speculate about this and, and you know, it's all about this, that, and the other thing. Stop it. Just stop. He doesn't say. You don't know. Neither do I. Just let it be. But there's something more out there. You know, it, it, in some ways it's saying God is God. That God has the full picture and we don't. And he may have given John a glimpse of that, but you and I don't get it. But we know that, that God is, is at work and, and, and that there's more to the picture. And that means that we have to walk by faith. And we have to trust him. You know, even when we don't see what's going on or don't understand everything that's going on because God does. And, and so this, this angel it turns back to him after the seven thunders, you know, and, and when, when it says seven thunders, you know, seven is that, that perfect number. And it's, it's, you know, all of this, you know, that, that, that God has, has said everything that needs to be said. And then the angel that's standing on the sea in the land raises his right hand. He swears by God, you know, God is the one who lives forever, created the heaven and all that's in it, earth, all that's in it, see the, all that's in it. Um, when you read the Old Testament, one of the reasons that we know God is God is because he made it. That's one of the things that the Old Testament refers to over and over again. You know, New Testament has this kind of language in it too. I think that a lot of times when we approach God, we tend to do it on the basis of Jesus has saved us. Theologically speaking, we call that justification. That justification becomes kind of the, the point where we come in contact with God so that we believe in him. And that's not wrong, but the fact of the matter is that God has made us. And I think that that might be an even more uh, compelling connecting point for people who don't believe that Jesus died to save them. God made you. You know, and it, it's, it's, this is, you know, all the other gods, um, they're, they're all the God of this or the God of that. And, you know, even... Odin Allfather, you know, there was something before him and, you know, he makes the world out of the, you know, the bones of giants and things like that. God is God and he makes all of it. You know, that, you know, in, in the way that, uh, you know, the scriptures testify to this. And, and, and so he says, in the day of the trumpet, the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God will be fulfilled. Well, we've been talking a little bit about that mystery in the sermons in Ephesians. What's the mystery of God? That he would give his son to die for sinners, to redeem us, to rescue us. That's the mystery. That sinners get to dwell with God eternally in glory. That's the thing that doesn't make any sense. But it, this is go, going to happen and it's going to be revealed. And it's all going to come to its fruition when this last angel blows the trumpet. And so this, this angel has a, a small scroll in his hand, and he tells John to, uh, to take the scroll. Actually, the voice that I heard from heaven 
God's voice. Go take the scroll and, and, and eat it. Take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach bitter and your mouth, in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And um, when we, so what, what, what is a scroll? This, this scroll is God's word. It's God's message in its fullness. And so to proclaim God's word, we ourselves must digest it. The message of God must be heard and internalized and, and believed and applied to ourselves. And sometimes, sometimes we don't like what the word confronts in us. Have you experienced that? Because yeah. I have. Sometimes we're sorrowful for what the word says uh, about us, but also about our friends who reject Jesus. We don't like what it says about that. You know, God's anger is never pleasant to hear about. Although in the end, you know, his anger is for our salvation. That's how he's going to use it. And yet there's this sweet message of forgiveness that runs through. You know, the remembrance that, uh, you know, that, that, that sin is paid for. And so when it talks about this scroll, and I think about how this angel dominates human history, I, I, I see this as God's ministry of the word proclaiming law and gospel. That he speaks that to his people. We take that in. And that's what we're all about is proclaiming God's word. And sometimes we speak this part of the word that's the law and it's bitter and we don't like it. But it really starts with this sweetness of God's salvation. That he has forgiven us for Christ's sake. And because of that forgiveness, our relationship with that law changes. And even though it does bring bitterness into our, our lives sometimes, we recognize it as God's wisdom and we receive it even with, with some joy because bitterness is sometimes good, right? What well, you guys got in those cups there? Coffee. Coffee, yeah. Were you drinking it black? If I were, it would be. In, 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 anybody here drink Beer? Not particularly sweet. No. And God's word does that too. That sometimes as we come to that bitterness, it's something that we might not be like, man, I love that, but I appreciate it. And you know, I recognize God's wisdom here at work in me and in the world. And so I, what I see in this angel here is really God's word dominating human history and the proclamation of that word, even as it comes to us, the same way it came to John, that we eat the scroll, that we read the word, and we digest it in ourselves before we can speak it out into the world. Questions about chapter 10. Chapter 11. Again, we have a kind of a longer section. Um, I'll read this one. Um, Verses 1 through 14 say, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, 
and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. <clears throat> These two are the olive are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, that's Satan, right, will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days... Some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwelled on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on all those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and the tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earth, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So we remember there was that eagle, woe, woe, woe to the earth, you know, because... Yeah. All right. So um, this is the second woe that he's describing here. So let's, let's start with the temple. Uh, he says, don't, me-, he says, measure the temple and, and he gives them a, a rod. And um, it, maybe you can imagine that as, uh, you know, I mean, you take a yardstick and you just kind of take it and flip it. Um, th- there are all kinds of tools like that. I remember one time um, Arts Petrino, uh, the guy who used to live down at the, uh, the end of the driveway there, he came over to our house. He was doing a project for us, and he had the stick that he came in with, and uh, you know he knew exactly how long it was, and he would you know put it up, and then he had there were sliders on it that he could use to mark different points on it, but he would measure with that, and I'm like, ooh, that's that's kind of neat, you know that's that's truly old school, you know in in, in the way that he did that. Um, but, uh, you know, basically, you know how long the stick is and you just keep moving it along and, and you, you measure the whole thing. And uh, he, he has them measure the temple, but it says to not measure uh, the courtyard outside the temple because it's given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Leave the 42 months aside for a moment um, and we'll come back to that in a second here. When he says to measure the uh, the, the temple but don't measure the courtyard the courtyard is part of the temple so what what is this this is the invisible versus the visible church so 
The invisible church is all believers of all time. Doesn't matter where you are, doesn't matter you know what congregation you're in. It's this is everyone who believes in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and they receive life and salvation from him. The visible church, well, that's all the denominations of the world. That's that's what we've got going on right here. You know, so the visible church, you know, it's Lutheran, it's Baptist, it's Methodist, it's you know, it, you know what happens in the visible church? You have a mix. You have the invisible church, but you also have people who don't believe, who are here for whatever reasons, um, because they're forced to come, because they're you know compelled to, because their wife is going, because um, uh, you know any number of things, because morality is a good thing, and the church gives morality to people. Or yeah, you know, and and you know all of those kinds of things, and that's all mixed in with the invisible church. And what John measures when he measures the actual temple is this. And, but he's saying that this is in the context of this. So that the temple always looks like it's being completely run over by the world. Even though it truly is protected and safe in God's power. You know, and so he's, he's recognizing that uh, you know, when we look at the world... When we look at the church in the world, the church always looks like it's being trampled. It always looks like things are going wrong. It always looks like it's failing and faulty, being trampled on. But the reality is that the temple is secure, that it's safe in God's power, that those who believe in Jesus, who are saved, who have his life and his forgiveness in them, God protects them. Even if the world does not see that, even if we, the visible church, don't always see that very clearly, you know. Um, yeah. Talking about it protects our souls. I mean, because we can get physically hammered. Sure. Um, our eternity it protects us. Well, here, here's a question: Are you body or soul? And always. Because in the resurrection, we receive a new body, you know, and, and we, we were created to be both body and soul, right? And so which part of you is you, your body or your soul? Really? Yes, your body is going to get beat up. Um, yeah. Right. Exactly. It's like a borrowed tent. Yeah. Um, but that tent matters. Um, I remember hearing a story. Uh, the uh, when 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 people die, uh, sometimes a word of comfort is spoken, where they say, you know, that's not your loved one in there. That's just a body. And I remember hearing a story about a, uh, a mom whose child had died, and somebody came up and said, that's not Billy, that's just his body. And the response was, but I washed that body, and I hugged that body, and I loved that body. This is something that I think is hugely important for us as Christians. 
we are body and soul. We are, that's, that's our full self. Now, if the body passes away, the soul continues to live, right? And it continues to live in the hope of the resurrection. That someday Jesus is going to raise us up from the dead and give us perfected bodies. But we make this dichotomy. And the dichotomy isn't real. Are you body or soul? No, I'm body and soul. I am me. And so when we die and we go to heaven, it talks about the the souls of those departed being underneath the altar. I think that there's some symbolism going on there that God gives us a tent to wait in until that day that that fullness of the resurrection comes to us when the seventh trumpet blows, when the seventh seal is broken. And that is so beautiful and so magnificent that he never really tells us what it's like. The trumpet blows. Everything's great. Next vi- part of the vision. Yeah. Isn't that why we are careful with and uh, take care of people's bodies? Absolutely. We don't just throw them off from the ash heap or use them to blow or anything. Yeah. I think that this is part of why the Old Testament talks about things like piercings and tattoos. Mm-hmm. It's not so much the piercing and the tattoo as it is the care for the body. I, I think that there's something to think about there, along with the religious connotations that went with that. Everything's religious. In a sense, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, there's some weird numbers here. He talks about 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years. What is going on here? Well, 42 months is three and a half years, right? 1,260 days is three and a half years, roughly, yeah. Um, so these are all the same time period, but he keeps calling them by different names. It's like, what are you doing? What, what is going on here? And why they're different, I don't think anybody could tell you for sure. You know, I mean, there, I'm sure that there's somebody out there who will confidently say it's because of this, and I would say baloney. Math lesson. Maybe, yeah. Um, and you know, maybe, maybe for the sake of beauty, maybe for the sake of you know, confusing us, I, I don't know. But sometimes people put a great deal of emphasis on exactly what names or numbers are used, and it means this, and it can't mean that. And maybe he's just saying, say it however you want to, it's the same. It's, it's a time period. Yeah, and it doesn't matter how you refer to it. Yeah. It's still the same thing, so don't worry about it. Yeah, it, 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 you know. But it's still an interesting number, though. Mm-hmm. And I think it, perfection. Yeah, and I think that there's something to consider here. Um, the period of time that uh, God's people are going to be trodden underfoot in the world comes to this 42-month period, three and a half years. Um, why the different units, I don't know. But uh, uh, why that time period? Well, you know, so we look back into the scriptures. Where, where do we find three and a half years or the equivalent in months or the equivalent in days. Um, Elijah's drought, we, you know, stopped, you know, prayed and, and, and you know, that was three and a half years. So there's something there. Um, there was a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes who, um, he was the ruler of, uh, of Jerusalem and 
he brought pigs into the uh, the temple and he sacrificed them there and he brought in um, Roman uh, gods into the temple and uh, and he reigned for three and a half years before the a group of uh, a family called the Maccabees um, maybe you've heard of them um, they were not nice people, by the way. Uh, I mean, anybody that can do the things that they did were not nice people. They may have been believers and everything, but holy smokes, um, a lot of violence there. Um, but they came and, and they, uh, they fought against Antiochus Epiphanes and, and uh, the people who were with them, and they drove them out, and then they uh, uh, restored the temple. And um, this is part of where we get the, the account of Hanukkah that they, uh, they cleansed the temple and uh, there wasn't enough oil uh, to burn for, you know, they're supposed to have it burning all the time, this eternal, like we have an eternal candle in there. Just so you know, that's not the same candle from last week. It just gets changed over and over again. Uh, same idea here. They just keep changing oil, adding oil. They had enough oil for one day and the closest that they could get the, their next uh, uh, shipment of oil, so to speak, seven days away. And the oil burned all through that period of time, um, miraculously. I actually tend to believe this, uh, you know. And uh, um, it's God, God's provision. You know, your salvation does not, you know, rest on that. By the way, so if you disagree with me, feel free. Um, but uh, um, I think that there's something there for us to grab hold of and, and to see God's provision. Uh, and that's 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 Hanukkah. Um, so maybe it's a, a reference to that. Jesus celebrated Hanukkah, by the way. Um, and, uh, it, it, you know, but uh, 42 years, uh, that's the period of time that, uh, that Israel wandered in the, uh, the, in the wilderness while they were in the prom- you know, waiting to get to the promised land. You know, there was two years that, you know, and, and then they sent the spies in and the spies came back and then, oh, the land's full of giants. You know, you know we're not going then. You know, and, and God said, well, guess what? You're not going. You're right. You're not going. Um, your children, you know, who you said those you know, giants will kill, they're the ones who are going to take the land, but you're going to die in the wilderness. Forty years. How's that for a great moment? You know, doesn't matter, you know, where you are on the timeline. You know, I know that in the next 40 years, I'm done. You know, and that, that's basically what that judgment was. So many people treat these numbers and years and months and days as to help them recognize the end of days. Do you believe that that that, that why that, that that's why that was put down? No, I don't. I think that this is a highly symbolic number, and it goes back to what what Carolyn said just a little bit ago, that seven is the number of perfection. This is half of that. And I think what it's saying is that God in his mercy has shortened the days to be ready. You know, that, you know, life is hard. And, you know, and, and the life of faith is difficult. We're going to face persecution. It's going to be a struggle. Um, to use the vernacular, sometimes life is hell. Mm-hmm. And God in his mercy has cut that short three and a half it's going to be enough it doesn't have to be the full and you know half of it's enough and then he's going to set all things right that's what i see there um 
you know, feel free to disagree with me about that. But I, you know, when I look at the whole scope of Revelation, I mean, over and over again, it's, you know, man, look at all the terrible things that are happening. You know, we got locusts coming out with scorpion tails and, and all of these other things. And, you know, who wants to live through all of that? And God says, no, I don't want my people to live through all of that. And Jesus talks about, you know, that everybody would be destroyed if the Father had not cut the time short. That's, that's what I think he's saying here. So that three and a half years, it's, it's that he shortened it in his mercy. Maybe that's what the um, saints under the altar are trying to do. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what they're doing. You know, so it's often couched in the language of, uh, you know, how long are you going to let these people who killed us go? The language of justice. Okay. You know, God bring us justice okay and uh, you know and god responds to that with mercy saying yes the justice will come but i have some other things that need to happen in there too and there are people who need forgiveness and life and salvation but i've cut the time short because yeah the justice matters too all yeah. the way through the bible people are telling god what he ought to do absolutely and he always comes back and we still do i'm god and you're not. Right. Yep. This is his basic answer. I'm yep. God, you're not. Just cool your jets. Yep. Bill? Doesn't this, uh, under the throne, I'm trying to think, uh, also people who have gone before uh, have not gotten new bodies yet either. Right. They're waiting for the resurrection. They're anxious for that day. That, that gives a lot of comfort to people who have lost close people. Yeah. But they are with God. Yeah. They are with Jesus and so on. And so uh, even without a body that, you know, it's just not. It's kind of interesting. It says that, you know, the, the ones who are, it, it's under the altar. Um, it's the in, altar of incense, really, where the prayers arise from. And uh, it says that when they get there, God gives them a robe. So being clothed in, the, you know, being clothed is also an image of having flesh. And, uh, um, and, and so there's this image of, you know, you're given a temporary shelter for while you're there waiting, but you're still, I want the real deal. I, I, I'm looking forward to that day of the resurrection. So now we've got these two witnesses. They're clothed, clothed in sackcloth, which is an image of, of grief and sorrow and repentance. You know, we, we see this over and over in, in the Old Testament. People clothe themselves in sackcloth in order to, uh, to repent of their sins. And so that probably tells us that they're preaching a message of grief and sorrow and repentance, calling the world to repentance. It says that uh, they are the two lampstands and the two olive trees. These are images from Zechariah chapter 4. Um, two witnesses anointed by God to proclaim the prophetic word uh, throughout the era, era of the new covenant. In Zechariah, it clearly points to two guys, two historical people by the name of Joshua and Zerubbabel. Joshua was appointed to be priest. Zerubbabel, which is fun to say, <laughs> was appointed to be king. Do we know anybody else who carried the prophets priest and king? Good friend of ours. Goes by the name Jesus. And so these two, they're symbolic of the church because the church does what Jesus called us to do. We continue Jesus' ministry. Remember how at one point he said, uh, you will do the things that I have done and greater things you will do? 
That's this. Continuing that ministry of bringing life and salvation into the world. They're interceding for the world in prayer. And they're proclaiming God's reign. The kingdom of God has come. Now, can you imagine somebody hating that message? Yeah, absolutely. And therefore, they're resisted by the world. Now, all kinds of people have have tried to find different uh, um, explanations for who these two guys are. Um, One of the most popular is that they are Elijah and Enoch, because these are two men who never died. They were assumed up into heaven, and, you know, maybe they just come right back down. Um, Others say Elijah and Moses, uh, because, you know, the the plagues and the things that happened were both part of their, their ministries. Um, some say Elijah and Elisha, um, very powerful miracles took place in them. Some say Zerubbabel and Joshua. Some say they're James and John. Some say Peter and Paul. I say, does it matter? <laughs> does it change the story at all to you know, find out that, you know, um, that this is Timothy and Titus? The ministry still happens the same. The events are still the same. So the identity really doesn't matter. Absolutely. But what matters is that in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, it says that every matter shall be established by two or three witnesses. These are God's witnesses to establish the matter that the kingdom of God has come and that God has acted in mercy. And so we intercede on behalf of the world. These witnesses, they're always in God's presence and and his glory and his holiness are are all about them uh, even as they they minister for him. And they're proclaiming Christ uh, to the context that they find themselves in. So, I mean, this is the story of the church all through history. Wherever they are, wherever we are, we proclaim God's word there. And, And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's a very dangerous thing to do. You know, go to our brothers and sisters in Syria. You know, and, and find out how dangerous it is dangerous it is to proclaim God's word there. Or Iran, or Turkey, or all over the place. There are lots of places where you know it's dangerous to talk about Jesus. But yet they're protected by God. And oh yeah. I, I was talking with uh, Joe Coffey one time, and they had sent a, uh, a mission team over to, I think it was the Philippines. And, um, and the, the group of them was arrested, and their, their pastor was thrown into jail. You know, and he's got all of these health issues. And, I mean, they were scared for his life. You know, and uh, um, they were finally able to get a message to him. You know, because, I mean, they... they He's going to die, you know, because of his medical condition and all of this stuff. And the guy replies back. He says, you know, you know, yes, you know, health struggles, all of these things. Get me out of here, but not too quickly. Because the prisoners are hearing about Jesus. Would you say that God was protecting him in the midst of that? I mean, talk about our perspective. That's this. That's what's going on here. You know, fire comes from their mouths. Well, guess what? God's word condemns sometimes. It kills. You know, Jeremiah says, is my word not a hammer? Is it not a fire that consumes? It does. 
And it may not, you know, always be like, when a person burns up and crumbles before you. But inside, God's word tears people apart sometimes. And this, this fire from their mouth, it's, it's like when Elijah uh, battled the, the prophets of Baal. You know, and they danced and they cut themselves trying to get Baal's attention to bring down fire on the sacrifice. And Elijah's like, this is too easy. I know this is a drought. I need about uh, 60 to 80 gallons of water poured on this before I even start. God, please, boom. That's, that's, that's the image here. You know, they're, they're able to shut up the heavens. You know, I mentioned Elijah did that. Um, they talk about water to blood and plagues. Well, Moses did that type of stuff. You know, and so that's part of the reason that they point to those two. And, and all of this, they're symbolic of, of the, the spiritual punishment that takes place in people's lives. Um, I was listening to uh, uh, a podcast recently, and they were talking to a missionary to New York City. He's from Australia, emigrated to America. And now he lives in New York City. And uh, he talks about dealing with people who are just extremely worldly wise and extremely cynical about spiritual things. And one of the things that he points out is, is that as he's dealing with people, he just meets them where they're at. You know, and then they start telling him about their lives and, you know, and how they disagree with this, that, and the other thing you know, that the, the Bible teaches. And he just kind of goes, huh, how's that going for you? And for some people, they, they, they don't know the damage that's being done to them. And they're like, I'm fine. What are you talking about? And yet for other people, God's word is working in such a way they're being destroyed from the inside out. And they're like, I need something. And I've rejected this. And then when he asks that question, how's that going for you? It's kind of like, oh, wait a second. Maybe there is something here. And he has the opportunity to speak gospel to them. God often will pick up the pen of pain to write on people's hearts. He's always trying to get our attention to draw us to repentance. And when there's pain in our lives, that's God saying, turn, repent, trust me, live in my grace, live in my forgiveness. Not always. Always. Because sometimes God sends difficulties into your life so that the way you deal with them is a witness to other people. They see how you deal with pain and that changes them. And when you deal with your pain, what do you need to do? You need to fly to Jesus. That's repentance. So that you come to trust in him more deeply, more fully. I had a dear friend, um, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Tough, tough battle. Devout Christian. She's a missionary. And she thinks, she's, this is what she told me. This is not you know, me interpreting. This is she goes, I thank God every day for breast cancer because I thought I trusted in him, but then I found out what it meant to trust in him. Mm-hmm. So he's always calling us away from the world to trust him more deeply. And, and as we turn away from the world and turn to him, that is repentance. You know, it, it might not be, well, I was a drug addict, you know, prostitute, and, you know, and I turned away. You know, I was a good Christian, but I was kind of holding on to these things. And God pulled me into a deeper relationship with him. Because even as good Christians, we have things to repent of, don't we? Mm -hmm. And he's always drawing us. And and pain is, is the tool that he uses over and over again to help us to trust him more deeply, 
to break those idols in our lives. Um, and then uh, as he, uh, we get through this, oh, this, this, this whole anti-Christmas thing. Did you catch that? They die and people are so happy they're dead, they're giving each other presents. Did, did you notice that when we read that? For three and a half days, some of the people in tribes and languages and nations will gaze on their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment. When the world looks at the church, it always sees the church as dying. Think back across your lifetime. How many times have you heard Christianity is dead or God is dead? Yeah, yeah. It almost seems like every Easter, Time Magazine is going to put out a story about how Jesus didn't actually rise, or he didn't actually die. Or he didn't actually die, right? You know, I mean, it's just like you know, the, the, you know, and we hear it even now. You know, oh, the church in North America is declining. You know, it's all you know falling apart, and you know, this is the end of Christianity. And do some people celebrate that? Absolutely. Um, was listening to a TED Talk a while back, and uh, one of the, uh, the guys on there says, and I can't wait for people to finally shuck all of this Christian nonsense. And I was like, really? Thank you for being tolerant and uh, open to ideas. But that, because there's, there, there's this antagonistic part. Yeah, I realize that, but it's still, it's like, yeah. Because God's word stirs people's hearts and its condemnation hurts. So what are you going to do with the hurt? Often that is what happens. And sometimes it's, wow, I'm being hurt in order to get my attention. And, and God does this beautiful work to bring faith into a person's life. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's no fun. Um, and so that, that's, that's, that's what's going on here. You know, they always see the church is dying. You know, these two representatives of, of God's word, they're dying. You know, and they, but God is always bringing the church back to life. Always raising it up. So while we see what's happening here in the United States and, and the, you know, the nuns are rising, not the ones that wear habits, but the ones who say they don't believe in anything, um, you know, and, and the church is, you know, ostensibly shrinking and, and all of that, um, you go to places like Ethiopia, and the church is thriving. And there are other places in the world that are sending missionaries to, to the United States. States. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, which, which you know, always kind of boggles my mind. Yeah. And then we get to the uh, seventh trumpet. When the seventh trumpet angel blew uh, his trumpet, there was a voice from heaven. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and the Lord shall reign forever and ever. Um, and the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Uh, the nations raged, and your wrath came, and the time for your dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth, and God's temple was opened, and the Ark of the Covenant was seen, God's presence right there with humanity, and, and there were flashes of lightning rumbling, and peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail. 
which is almost exactly how the last vision, you know, the last seven uh, seals part of the vision ended. And then we move into something new. And, and I don't have this stuff written out for you, um, but, um, but we're going to run through this, some of this uh, really quickly. Um, so chapter 12 says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that she bore her child, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. He gave birth, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the people fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she was to be nourished for 1,260 days. That shortened period of time. So, all right, who's this woman? Uh, th this woman is clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet. You know, these are, again, images of God's glory and God's power uh, at work in her. Uh, she's got a crown on her head. 12 stars. Um, there are two popular um, uh, interpretations here. And, uh, and I think they're both valid. Um, the first and, and more common one among Lutherans is that this is an image of the church. And so, you know, the, the ancient symbol for the church is as mother, that the church gives birth to us through faith. And, and so um, then we start asking, well, who's the red dragon? Well, that's Satan. Um, and, uh, you know, and he wants to devour Christians, you know, to destroy us. The other image that I, I think has some validity, uh, although it starts to break down as you go through the rest of the chapter, is that this is Mary. And, and I think that that has some validity. I mean, Mary is highly honored. She gets to bring Jesus into the world. Is he not the one who will rule the nations? You know, and, uh, um, and did she face persecution? And uh, was, was Jesus then sought to be devoured or destroyed or killed you know, shortly after he was born? You know, and, and so in a sense, this, I think that the images kind of blur together here, that Mary, in a sense, is a picture of the church and as Mary brings Jesus into the world, the church brings faithful into the world. You know, and, and you kind of have both of those things uh, going on here. Um, if nothing else, it's a very familiar image as we think about Christmas. You know, Jesus being born, and already there are enemies there at hand who seek to destroy him. You know, and it's interesting when you think about this, and, and I'm getting myself into deeper trouble here. Um, <laughs> When you look at the Old Testament gods, almost all of them, at some point or another, call for infant sacrifices. Why might that be? Because Satan you know, recognizes that the one to come who would destroy him, the one who would crush the serpent's head, is the seed from Mary. It's going to be a son. 
down through the ages. So what do you do about that? Start killing kids. And I think that that's part of, part of his agenda to try to have this Messiah not be born. Um, so she has the, 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 the image of the, 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 the crown and the 12 stars. You know, that, that, those are very churchy images. You know that uh, we reign under God's authority. The twelve stars reminds us of the twelve apostles, or the or, or the twelve tribes of Israel, um, and uh, this great red dragon. I think that we can go back to earlier when the the beast comes out of the uh, the uh, the pit um, to uh, uh, to destroy. Um, I think that we can identify that as Satan. It says seven heads and ten ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. Uh, so seven is this, this full number, and he's got a full load of authority, um, ten horns. Horns symbolize power. Ten is a, a big, big number, saying that he's got lots and lots of power. And notice that it says that the diadems are on his head. This will matter if and when we ever get to chapter 13. Um, so uh, you know, what happens? The child is born, and God saves the child saves the mother, rescues them. Um, the child is called up to heaven and the mother, the church, you know, kind of goes into hiding and is preserved and protected. It continues, it says, now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels. Uh, there are only a handful of angels that are named in the scriptures. Um, they, uh, this is one of them. He's named in Daniel. Oh, 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 I forgot. Uh, the tail swept a third of the stars out of heaven. That's where we get that image that, you know, a third of the angels fell. That's right here. You know, so that there's a bit of interpretation going on there. Um, so not all of them, but too many to really want to be happy about it. Um, and then the war arose. Michael and his angels fight against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Uh, in Luke 10, uh, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. That's that. Okay, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, catch that word, uh, who is called the devil and Satan. Oh, now we definitely know who this is, right? Uh, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle, Isaiah 40, they mount up on wings like eagles, uh, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. A year and two years and a half a year. Three and a half years. It's that same number. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. The devil is always trying to destroy the church. 
But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who kept the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. All right, a couple things to unpack, and then we're going to be done with chapter 12. Image of a dragon. For me, when I think of a dragon, I think of something kind of like a dinosaur. That's not the way that the ancients always thought of dragons. It's, this is very culturally um, uh, uh, formed. So notice that he calls the dragon um, a, a, the ancient serpent. You know, and that a very snake-like creature is uh, often how dragons are, are uh, depicted in other cultures. And so this is pointing back to Genesis and saying, that's him. And he's always fighting against the church and he is always seeking to destroy the church. But he has been cast down. And so salvation and power in the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ have come. Satan means accuser. That's his, the work that Satan does. He's constantly accusing, constantly trying to give us a bad conscience. You know, because we start looking at ourselves instead of looking at what Jesus has done. And so how do we conquer Satan? Because this is, this is all describing spiritual warfare. How do we conquer him? That's not what it says here. By the blood of the lamb, we conquer him because Jesus died for us. And by the word of their testimony. So it happens because we've been redeemed by Christ. His blood covers us. We're sealed in baptism. And we speak his word. That's it. You know, and, and so, you know, even to the point where we would be willing to die, but we're washed by the blood of the lamb and we live in that testimony. And, and you know, it says, woe to you, O earth and sea. Life is going to be hell. Why? Because the king of hell is here. And that's what he's trying to do as he seeks to destroy the church. And he wants to destroy those who keep the commandments of God when it says commandments, I think this is the whole word of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea and that's where we're going to pick it up next week.